I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we recognize that current usage in language does not apply when it comes to reading ancient texts. Well, every translation of the Bible faces an issue that is nearly insurmountable. This problem arises from the fact that we, as people, when we hear words used in our own languages, we attach to these words ideas and assumptions that arise from our own culture. The simple fact that the words that an ancient culture used were then turned into English or Spanish or French or Russian or even Chinese will invariably cause some things to go missing in the resulting text. Because each culture has various ideas and understandings of what each word means. And we as humans will always attach culturally connected ideas to any word that we hear. And these connected ideas are not necessarily inaccurate. We looked at this a little last week when we considered the difference that occurs in languages between two very closely connected cultures, that of Britain and America, two cultures that speak the same language, and yet when we hear certain words, different connected ideas spark in our minds. Take, for example, the word biscuit. In the U.S., ideas of flaky and salty and fluffy and savory and dinner all pop into our minds at the mention of this word. We can even attach ideas of gravy or honey or butter or jelly alongside this word because we have a preferred way of eating our biscuits. But in Britain, when this word is used, the ideas of crunchy and crispy and sweet are what fire off in the brain. And connected to this are thoughts of snack or tea time as what they call a biscuit, an American would term a cookie. But even when we mean the same thing with our words, different ideas also arise. For example, the word beer means the same thing in both cultures. In both cultures, ideas of alcohol, barley, or wheat, various brand names, friends, sporting events, and such accompany this word. But in the U.S., the sporting event is baseball or American football, while in the U.K., it's football, what we call soccer, or cricket that might accompany this word. In the U.S., dinner or after dinner might be associated with a beer, but in the U.K., beer is just another beverage, and so lunch is often associated with a beer. And the differences that might arise can go on and on as our minds associate a singular idea with a hundred others that are all just as accurate, if completely different. And so when we approach the Bible, this issue becomes much greater. Not only are we dealing with two different cultures, But these cultures are vastly different. There is nothing in our culture that is anything like the cultures that the Bible was written into. And yes, I do mean cultures, plural, because the Bible contains over 1,500 year timeline. And the people and the assumptions, they would change as time passed, just as it does for us. For example, the word sword to those who were given the Torah It meant a bronze weapon, 
but in the first century it meant a weapon of steel. And for the last two weeks we have examined several places where situations such as this occur in connection to the biblical text. We saw that the word law did not mean in ancient Israel what it means to modern Americans, and likewise the word faith carries with it a vastly different set of connected ideals. And this becomes vitally important to recognize, especially as we begin to grasp and act out the biblical gospel. Because the gospel is not self-contained in the New Testament. Hebrews 4.2, For indeed, the gospel was brought to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not having been mixed with faith in those who heard it. Who was them in this verse? It's those who received the Torah. It was ancient Israel. Not a different gospel was given to them. The very same gospel. They received the same gospel, however, with slightly different terms. And what was the issue? It wasn't the message itself. It was that the gospel was not accompanied by faith in those who heard it. And with our new understanding of faith from last week, this takes on a whole new meaning. Because ancient Israel believed in Hashem, they believed that they had been redeemed from out of the house of bondage, but that faith was not accompanied by allegiance to the God who had saved them. They remained henotheistic, serving many gods with Hashem at the head, despite what we read of here in the Torah. They allowed Rome to pick their priests and kings. Heck, they chose to have kings in the first place. They did not follow the wisdom that was imparted about covenanting with the nations and marrying into them and such, and they were, bit by bit, dragged away to follow other gods. The gospel that they heard, the same gospel that was preached by Yeshua and the apostles, did not profit them. And what was that gospel? It was a kingdom gospel. For it's the same gospel even today. The kingdom of God is coming to earth, and you are invited to enter in. It is imperative that we understand that the gospel is the same in both Testaments. Only then can we truly dig into the Old Testament text to discover how the gospel was first preached to ancient Israel. Now, there is another word besides faith that is used throughout Scripture to describe just how we can achieve this justification of salvation that is part of the New Testament gospel. It is the quality or the act that both precedes and follows faith. And it's a word that we impose all sorts of faulty ideas upon when we read of it in the text of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8-9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, so that no one should boast. Last week we looked at faith and what it meant to the ancient cultures of the Bible, because that is what the text described. And surprisingly, but not really when you stop and think about it, the text this week then points to other words in this passage that's part of the process of salvation. And the next word on the docket is grace. It is by grace that you have been saved. But what does that mean? Well, to discover this, we need to let go of our culturally biased understanding of grace and go back in time and see what ancient authors had to say about this ancient ideal of grace. And then we can couple together grace and faith understood as allegiance 
and perhaps we can gain a better understanding of just how this process of salvation works, and just what, if anything, is expected of us. Deuteronomy chapter 8 Guard to do every command which I command you today, so that you might live, and shall increase, and go in, and shall possess the land which Hashem swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that Hashem your Elohim led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would guard his commands or not. And he humbled you, and let you suffer hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you shall know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Hashem your Elohim disciplines you. Therefore you shall guard the commands of Hashem your Elohim and walk in his ways and fear him. For Hashem your Elohim is bringing you into a good land, a land of streams of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey a land in which you eat bread without scarcity, and in which you do not lack at all, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you dig copper. And you shall eat and be satisfied, and shall bless Hashem your Elohim for the good land which he has given you. Be on guard, lest you forget Hashem your Elohim by not guarding his commands and his, ju- and his judgments and his laws which I have commanded you today. Lest you eat, and you shall be satisfied, and build lovely houses, and shall dwell in them, and your herds and your flocks increase, and your silver and your gold are increased, and all that you have is increased, that your heart then becomes lifted up, and you forget Hashem your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and awesome wilderness, fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsts, where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock and who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know in order to humble you and to try you, to do you good in the end. You then shall say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand have made for me this wealth. But you shall remember Hashem your Elohim, for it was he who gives you power to get wealth, in order to establish his covenant which he swore with your fathers as it is today. And it shall be if you by any means forget Hashem your Elohim and follow other mighty ones, and serve them, and bow yourself to them. I have warned you this day, and you shall certainly perish. Like the nations which Hashem is destroying before you, so you are to perish, because you did not obey the voice of Hashem, your Elohim. If you have attended a modern church for any length of time, you have likely heard a message concerning the grace that God bestows upon those who believe. In fact, the modern Western idea of grace has so completely saturated our culture that the ancient ideal of grace has been seemingly completely erased. And so we need to go back and gather in the ideas connected to grace and make them once again part of our web of ideas that are attached to this word grace. Last week we saw how various dictionaries spoke of the word faith, and we saw that at least one dictionary retained the idea of allegiance or loyalty being associated with the word faith. But not so with grace. I looked through around a dozen modern English dictionaries in preparation for teaching on this, and not a single one of them presented grace as we read of it in ancient sources. Every single one of them, however, contained the definition of 
the freely given unmerited favor and love of God. The influence of Spirit of God operating in humans to regenerate or to strengthen them. Or a virtue of excellence or divine origin. Alongside many other definitions that have little to do with the topic at hand. And that's what we've heard bandied about when this topic of grace arises in connection to God. This is the idea web that we have integrated with the word grace, the unmerited favor, or the freely given gift. Now, these definitions are not inherently wrong or incorrect. The problem with these definitions is not outright error, but rather these definitions are missing something, a flavor of the ancient Near East. They don't contain the connected cultural ideas that would have been present in ancient cultures. And these ideals are integrally part of understanding this idea of faith as it's spoken of in first century and before. And so let's spend some time discussing grace as thought of in the first century. And then let's return to this chapter and see how we find these ideas of grace reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So how was grace thought of in ancient cultures? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time making this case, as there are other authors who handle this topic quite excellently. I highly recommend David De Silva's Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, Unlocking New Testament Culture as a Starting Point. In this book, he does an excellent job of making the case that grace is associated with the well-known ancient practice of patronage. The patron-client relationship that was a huge part of the ancient world Ziba Cook, in his book, Reconceptualizing Conversion, Patronage, Loyalty, and Conversion in the Religions of Ancient Mediterranean, recounts that both ancient Greek and Roman cultures had a saying that was expressed widely by both. Grace must be met with grace. Favor must always give birth to favor. Gift must always be met with gratitude. An idea that is found all throughout ancient writings. And so now, we face the task of retraining our minds to develop new webs of connected ideas when we encounter the word grace. So the Greek word at play here is the word charis, and it's translated as grace or favor in most English Bibles. We need to incorporate all of these associated ideas with this word charis. These ideas include ideas of patronage, benefaction, benevolence, generosity, benefit, and favor. Now, John Barclay uses the word gift to translate the word charis, but when in his book, Paul and the Gift, he takes nearly 100 pages to simply make the distinction between the modern understanding of the word gift and the ancient understanding of the word gift, we can see that even the word gift isn't super helpful. Regardless of how you decide to translate this word, we need to recover some of these cultural ideas that are associated with grace in the ancient mind, even if you use the word gift. So let's examine this relationship of patronage and discover how the ancient idea of receiving grace differs from the modern ideal of grace. Now, in the ancient world, scarcity was the reality. You could not simply pop over to the local grocery store and find all of the foods that you may want or need. You could not go to Walmart or Amazon and browse catalogs or aisles of millions of items for sale. 
If you wanted something that was not to be found in the marketplace, then you needed to know someone. You needed to have a relationship with another in order to secure the things that you could not secure on your own. And so we introduced the broker. A broker was a patron who provided access to other patrons. A person who operated in the role of a broker became known as a mediator between the person who needed and the person who could get for them. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the Master Messiah, the Yeshua. Already we see just a small hint of this idea of Yeshua acting as a patron between God and man. But patronage wasn't an official deal. There's no contract or legal expectation placed on either party in a patron-client relationship. Aristotle states in Nicomachean Ethics that grace, or charis, may be defined as helpfulness towards someone in need, not in return for anything, nor for the advantage of the helper himself or herself, but for that of the person being helped. Now, if we were to stop here, we would think, well, then what's the problem? This is how we understand grace today. Unmerited favor. Helping out a person who simply cannot help themselves. But we must understand that when Aristotle says this, he is expressing what the attitude of the giver of grace is to be towards the person who is the recipient of said grace. This quote underscores the idea that the giver must never act out of self-interest but rather should always only be concerned with the interest of the recipient. If the motive is primarily of self-interest, then any sense of favor was nullified with it, and the responses of obligation and gratitude also nullified. A person who gives with an eye towards self-interest is an investor, not a benefactor or a patron. And so the patron-client relationship breaks down when the patron approaches a relationship in this way. The Jewish sage Yeshua ben Sirah, in his book that bears his name, echoes this idea when he speaks of the ungraceful giver in chapter 20, verse 13 through 16 of his works. This character gives not out of virtue of generosity, but in an anticipation of profit. And if the prophet does not come immediately, he considers his gift to be thrown away, and he complains aloud about the ingratitude of the human race. And so far, nothing seems out of place. Why are we going over this again? Okay, so grace is language of patronage, and it's the patron that gives the gift that need not be repaid. All right, simple enough. Moving on. Wait a minute. If we stop and we examine these same texts and how they speak of the client in this relationship, we might discover that there was a cultural expectation on the client. Seneca states that an act of grace must give rise to a response of gratitude, or else something beautiful will be defaced and turned into something ugly. And Yeshua ben Sira states that ingratitude is something to be avoided in itself, because there is nothing so effectually disrupts and destroys the harmony of the human race as this vice. For how else do we all live in security if it's not that we help each other by an exchange of good offices? It is only through the interchange of benefits that life becomes in some measure equipped and fortified against sudden disasters. Take us singly and what are we? the prey of all creatures. 
Grace given is to find a response of gratefulness. But beyond the response of gratitude, the response of the client is also to be a response of faithfulness. Loyalty to the patron, even when the patron's fortunes turn or it becomes costly to remain with the patron. Seneca relates that if you wish to make a return for a favor, you must be willing to go into exile, to pour forth your blood, or to undergo poverty, or even let your very innocence be stained and exposed to shameful slanderers. When you accept a gift of grace in the ancient world, you were bound to the patron. Your name and reputation became linked to theirs, and their name became linked to yours. And the response of the client did not end at simply being faithful to the master. Seneca continues, If we have shown forth our gratitude in the hearing of the patron and borne witness to the patron's virtue of generosity in the public halls, we have repaid favor with favor. But for the actual gift, one still owes an actual gift. And that gift in the case of the client who was poor would be expected to be their services turned back to the benefit of the patron at some point in the future. And this return was to be held back until only given at the very most appropriate moment, to find that real time of need and fill it, not to manufacture a need or a benefit that did nothing for the patron. And because honor and shame was such a central part of the culture, the patron would always be respectful of the position of their client. And the way that they would do this is to call their client friend. Again, a modern word that means one thing that is a completely different connotation when used in the ancient world. Friends were not peers who enjoyed each other's companies. A friend was a client to a patron. James 2.23 and the scriptures was filled, which said, Abraham believed Elohim, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And he called him friend of God. John fifteen fifteen, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all teaching which I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Abraham wasn't God's buddy. Abraham was God's client. Abraham believed he had pistis. He pledged allegiance and entered into a relationship of grace and became a patron. And according to Ziba Cook, the client would then practice what's called patronal synchrosis, the practice of comparing the inferior past of the client to the superior present, and all of the credit would be given to the patron for this change. We see Paul engaging in this exercise in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3-9. through 9. For we are the circumcision who are serving God in the Spirit and boasting in Messiah Yeshua, and do not trust in the flesh, though I too might have trust in the flesh. If anyone else thinks to trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the race of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews according to the Torah of Pharisee, according to zeal, persecuting the assembly according to the righteousness that is the law, having become blameless. But what might have been gained to me I have counted as loss because of Messiah. 
What is more, I even count all to be lost because of the excellence of the knowledge of the Messiah Yeshua, my master, for whom I have suffered the loss of all, and count them as refuse in order to gain Messiah and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which is from God on the basis of faith. In this passage, Paul describes his previous life, which was not all that bad, and yet when he compares his past to his present, the past was worthless and dismal, but the present is wonderful. Why? Because of his patron. So let's add these all together and get an example of patronage in action. Let's say that you are a baker of bread in the ancient Near East, and you need something to start your new bakery and to get it off the ground. You have a patron who is the mediator, and he searches for another patron who has exactly what you need. Now, through this new patron, you receive the necessary funds for securing a building or ovens or or whatever it was that you needed. The patron simply gives it to you with no expectation of return. Your responsibility, then would be to continually show gratitude to the patron by telling others of what your patron had done for you. You would bestow honor upon the patron by telling of his generosity to others, and in so doing you would demonstrate your own gratefulness for the gift of the patron. You would tell your clients and friends of how you were without hope before your patron, wallowing in service to another, no growth possible in your life, but then, then your patron came along, and it's all because of him that you now enjoy this life that you live. But then one night, the patron receives word that they are to have a guest arrive early in the morning, and that guest needs to be fed, and this is a surprise visit. You get a knock on your door at midnight. The patron's servant is there relating the story of this unfortunate circumstance as the patron does not have everything necessary to make bread to entertain his guest. They may or might not request that you actually make bread. Regardless, they would relate this unfortunate news. You as the client, you would recognize now your opportunity to repay the gift. You would get out of bed and make several loaves for their guest, even if it meant you lost sleep and a long day tomorrow. Your patron needs the bread, or he will be seen as if he is a bad host, and that would cause him to lose face, and you simply cannot allow that to happen. And in the morning when you delivered bread to the patron, the gift that you had been paid would have been repaid with a gift in kind. The patron-client relationship would be fulfilled. Not over, but having reached its fullest potential, both parties acting in the fullness of that relationship. The physical, tangible gifts and access to things that the client would not normally have access to would have been accomplished by the patron. And in return, a reciprocity of honor, gratitude, praise, faithfulness, and service would be returned to the patron. And this was the proper way to live in this kind of relationship. But it didn't always work this way. Sometimes the client did not respond properly to the gift of the patron, and so there was wisdom that was to be applied when the patron took a client. According to Cicero, good gifts badly placed are badly given. Isocrates in Teutomonicus states, 
Bestow your favors on the good, for a goodly treasure is a store of gratitude laid up in the heart of an honest man. If you benefit bad men, you will have the same reward as those who feed stray dogs. For these snarl alike at those who give them food and at the passing stranger. And just so base men wrong alike those who help them and those who harm them. And a person who acted ungratefully or failed to repay the patron was seen as an ingrate and would not be likely to attract other patrons, and they would receive no future grace from their benefactor. A person would build a track record in how he responded to the generosity of a patron, and that track record would then act as a sort of credit rating for other potential patrons. And patrons were unlikely to give gifts to those who were unwilling to enter into that dance of patronage. And to the modern ears, this sounds confusing because a patron was not to look for benefit from their client, and yet if they did not receive benefit, they were unlikely to help their client out any further. And in fact, the entire exercise of the patron-client relationship was governed by seemingly conflicting rules. For the benefactor, they were to train their mind to treat the transaction as if it were no transaction. Seneca states, The bookkeeping is simple. So much is paid out. If anything comes back in, it is gain. If nothing comes back, there is no loss. I made the gift for the sake of giving. But the recipient was never to be allowed to forget the gift or his obligation to the giver. The giver is told to make no record of the amount, but the recipient is to feel indebted for more than the amount. The giver should forget that the gift was given, and the recipient should always remember that the gift was received. The giver is not to mention the gift again, while the recipient is to publicize it as broadly as possible. And therein lies the complicated dance that's encompassed in this idea of receiving grace. We, as recipients of grace, are indebted to our benefactor. We are to never forget the grace that's been bestowed upon us. We are to publish reports of our gift, to praise our patron, and seek to give honor to our patron. Our goal as clients of his is to seek the good of our patron in every way, because his reputation and our reputation is now wrapped up completely together. And so with this, let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and examine this relationship being described right here in the pages of Deuteronomy. As we open up verses 1 through 2 that speak of how the clients can repay our patron, we can act in a way that will not bring shame upon our patron, because our actions as clients can indeed reflect upon the patron. And so we should remember... We should remember the things that have been done for us, how he led Israel through the wilderness, how he trained us and tested us to build us up into being good clients that will accurately represent him to others. And during this test, he was faithful to feed us and to clothe his clients so that we would not do without while incapable of serving the patron. And the relationship that we are to look at in the wilderness journey through is this lens of a father to his children, willing to discipline in order to build up, a patron who is stern and yet just and loving. And the patron is leading his people to a great land, 
He is preparing to bestow upon them a gift of springs and streams, a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Being a client to this patron means never experiencing famine or lack of benefits and enrichment from the relationship. And when the patron is finished bestowing his grace upon you, you are to turn to him and bless him. You are to return gratitude to the patron as is the proper response. And in verse 11, the text hinges around and shifts to examine and warn against the ingrate. So be on guard. Don't become an ingrate. When the gift that he has given you is in a full effect, when you are experiencing all of the benefit that your patron has gifted you, don't forget what he has done. Remember the gift of grace that he has given you by leading you through the wilderness, by feeding you, giving you drink through his miraculous power, and caring for all of your needs and delivering you out of the bondage of Egypt. Do not say to yourself or believe in your heart that you were one who was able to accomplish this, that you did this yourself. You have a patron, and without your patron's gift, without his grace, you would be nowhere. Verse 18 then says, Remember Hashem, who is the one who gives you the ability to do anything that it is that you do. If we were remember back to our lesson on Hebrew word, remember from the beginning of Exodus, the word remember has an active component. And so remembrance of what Hashem has done for you is to have an active response, to publish the gift of your patron, to give and channel honor to your patron, to seek to increase the power base of your patron, to honor, worship, and obey. But if you by any means forget what Hashem has done for you, then you will be cut off. The benefits that he's bestowed upon you of wealth and protection it will be removed from you, and you will be just like everyone else who does not have Hashem as their patron. You will be destroyed right alongside them. And this is how Deuteronomy steeps the relationship of Hashem and man. As a king, yes, but as a king who is the greatest patron to his people, as kings were supposed to be, the benefactors of the nations with public projects and works of roads and, and so forth. The description given in this chapter could easily have been stated by a dozen Greek or Roman philosophers because they describe in their text the same kind of relationship to Israel that Israel is to have to Hashem. And so when we turn to the New Testament and we read of grace being an integral part of the gospel, we have to be sure that we understand this term in the way that those who wrote the words understood them. So let's turn to the New Testament and see if these ideas of grace as part of the patron-client relationship hold up. Now we see several examples of this type of relationship described in the text of the Bible. Uh, the first one is an actual patron-client relationship described. Luke 7, verse 1 through 10. And when he completed all his words in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain captain's servant, who was valuable to him, was sick and about to die. And hearing about Yeshua, he sent elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Yeshua and begged him earnestly, saying, He is a worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and he's built the congregation for us. So Yeshua went with them. 
However, he was not far off from the house when the captain sent friends to him, saying to him, Master, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. The centurion in this story, he was a patron of the Jews. He had given grace to them with a synagogue, and now those who have benefited from this relationship, they are his clients. And so when the centurion hears of Yeshua, and he has need of Yeshua, he sends other Jews to make his case. They're of the same kinship group, and so, in the centurion's mind, that will make Yeshua more likely to grant his request. And when they get to Yeshua, the first thing that they do is they publish his acts on their behalf, and they bestow honor upon him, and then make the request. They return the gift through an act of service to their patron. Another example of this relationship is found in the book of Philemon. Now, for the following, I will be quoting from an article that was written by David De Silva on the topic of grace being connected to patronage. His take on the book of Philemon, it's much better than any paraphrase I could write, and so I'm going to use his words. Although Paul lacks both property and a place in the community, he nevertheless claims to be able to exercise authority over Philemon on the basis of having brought Philemon the message of salvation, thus on the basis of having given a valuable benefit in verses 8 and 18. Philemon himself has been the benefactor of the Colossian church, seen in his opening up of his house to them in verse 2 and the generosity that has been the means by which the hearts of the saints have been refreshed in verse 7. Perhaps including material assistance offered Paul during the time of the acquaintance and after. We find a mixture of grounds on which Paul bases his request. On the one hand, Paul claims authority to command Philemon's obedience as Paul's client, verses 8, 14, and 20. On the other hand, he voices his preferences to address Philemon as friend, verse 1, co-worker and partner, and only actually makes his requests on that basis, 9, 14, 17, and 20, hoping now to benefit, 20, from Philemon's continued generosity towards the saints, which has earned him much honor in the community. The gift, really the return, that Paul seeks is the company and the help of Onesimus, Philemon's slave. Paul presents Onesimus as someone who can give Paul the kind of help and service that Philemon ought to be providing Paul, in verse 13. And Paul's mention of his own need and his age and his imprisonment, in verse 9, will both rouse Philemon's feelings of friendship and desire to help, as well as to make failure to help a friend that much more reprehensible. Paul relies heavily on this patron-client relationship to make his case to Philemon and to leverage his gratitude to a beneficial outcome for everyone. On One other example that often escapes us is the parable of the shrewd servant found in Luke 16, 1-9. And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a manager. He was accusing him as to wasting his possessions. So having called him, he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you are no longer able to be manager. And the manager said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the managership away from me, and I am unable to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, that when I am removed from the managership, they might receive me into their houses. And calling every one of his master's debtors to him, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? 
And he said, A hundred measures of oils. And he said to him, Take your bill, and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, He said, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, because the sons of this age are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they shall receive you into everlasting dwellings. All too often we shake our heads at this parable. What is Yeshua advocating here? What is he speaking about? What the heck is going on? But when we apply the patron-client lens to the story, we discover that the story isn't so weird. It's just culturally removed. The shrewd servant knew that he was about to be fired. The soon-to-be unemployed steward then provides substantial relief for his master's debtors as an act of benefaction, using the authority that he still has as the manager of the accounts. The servant is counting on the recipients to then show their gratitude to his patronage when he will need aid in the very near future. And then when we get to the gospel, we read this language used throughout. In Acts 17, Paul approaches the Athenians, pagans who knew nothing of the Jewish God, and frankly, they didn't care. And yet Paul preaches to them. And how does Paul approach this message? Acts 17, 24-31. Hashem who made the world and all that is in it, this one being master of heaven and earth, does not dwell in dwellings made with hands, nor is he served with men's hands as if needing anything, himself giving to all life and breath and all else. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth, having ordained beforehand the times and boundaries of their dwelling, to seek the master, if at least they would reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and are, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now then, since we are the offspring of God, we should not think that God is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by the skill and thought of man. Truly then, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having given proof to this all through raising him from the dead. Paul approaches the Athenians by presenting God as the patron of all mankind. Thus all mankind is indebted to him and owes him as a client to a patron. Now, Paul could not come declaring that they needed to shift their allegiance to a new king. That message would have ended in death. Instead, the relationship of patron to client is one that conveys the same idea in a culturally acceptable and understandable method. And this is what we encounter throughout Scripture. God gives great gifts to all. He gives gifts both communally and individually, and he always gives good gifts to his clients. Mental and spiritual endowments are made. Growth of communities and their membership are also gifts that are given by God to all who have faith in Him. The very salvation that we receive from God is a gift. It is an act of grace that God extends to all. And anyone can accept this gift of salvation and justification simply by accepting it. But once you do... You have now entered into a patron-client relationship. There are expectations of action placed upon you. 
Paul's thanksgiving portions of his letters attribute all progress within individuals and communities to God's gifting and equipping. Church leaders are to take stock of what has been occurring in their midst and are to return their things of honor to God, who accomplishes every good work. Even monetary gifts to the church are steeped in the language of God's provision for the church, so that no one would-be patron could build a personal power base out of a local church community. Expectations of gratitude, giving of honor, and praise for your benefactor are then the expected response to the client. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us hold the grace through which we serve God pleasingly with reverence and awe. Paul gives us example after example of returning thanks to God as our response to his gift. 1 Corinthians 1.4-8 For I thank my God always concerning you, for the grace of God, which was given to you by Messiah Yeshua, that in him you were all enriched in all, in every word and all knowledge, as the witness of Messiah was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who shall also confirm you to the end, unreprovable in the day of our Master Yeshua the Messiah." And then he exhorts us also to give thanks to our patron. Ephesians five eighteen through 20 And do not be drunk with wine, which is loose behavior, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other in the psalms and songs and praise and spiritual songs, singing and striking the strings in your heart to the Master, giving thanks always for all to God the Father in the name of our Master Yeshua the Messiah. I could go on and on with examples of this language throughout the New Testament, but I'm frankly running out of time. If you're interested in digging into this further, read that book, Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity by David De Silva. This is a foundational work to understanding the Bible in its ancient context and learning to apply these ancient cultural ideas to our own Bible study. All of this, however, is again just the beginning to demonstrating the proto-gospel as it's presented in the book of Deuteronomy. This expansion of the first of the ten words. It is truly an announcement of the gospel of the kingdom of God and an explanation of what it means to be part of this kingdom. And as part of the kingdom of God, we experience grace, the gift of a patron to someone who is unable to secure for themselves the goods and services that the patron can give us. And anyone can accept this freely given gift. But once the gift is accepted, there is a response that is also expected, not demanded, not required, but expected, as the response of one who has been the recipient of such abundant grace. Honor, glory, praise, service, even proselytism, these are the expected responses of the one who receives grace to the one who has given such grace. So while, yes, on the part of the giver, grace is a gift that expects no reward, we are not, however, the ones who are giving such grace. There is an expectation on us, an expectation to act in the honor of the one who has given such grace, and in the returning of such honor and in the increase of that kingdom, there is life to be found. 
So Deresh Chai, everyone. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.